You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hi, my name is Foster Sofer, and I will be reading from Matthew 10, 34 through 42. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, church, let's dig into this together. I'm going to pray as we do. Join me as I pray for us. Father, this is a pretty heavy and intense word as we've been hearing throughout this entire chapter of Matthew, and we need your help to to have hearts that are tender, that are receptive, but also minds that are able to hear and understand what you have to say to us today. So we pray that we would gain understanding, but we also pray that that would lead to transformation, that we would be willing to face the cost of following you today, that we might look toward our future hope of being compensated by you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you guys might be familiar with the ad campaign called He Gets Us. They famously advertised during the Super Bowl. Some of you guys might have seen some of these ads. It's a Christian ad campaign. They've spent over $100 million, if you can imagine that, on this campaign, funded by all kinds of different uh, people and organizations. And you might have your doubts about the effectiveness of it, but I found it interesting this week to read that, according to them anyway, Google searches for the term Jesus went up 3,800% in January as they began promoting their ad presence in the Super Bowl. If you can just kind of get your mind around that, Jesus is already a word that gets searched by Google a lot, and it went up that much. And they say 
This organization says, He gets us is about the radical forgiveness, compassion, and love that Jesus embodied and nothing else. Great. Fantastic. I'm uh, not going to criticize this ad campaign, although I would question whether $100 million is, this is the best way that Christians could spend that money. In any case, what I want to actually explore with you for a minute is the picture that they're giving us of Jesus. What is this picture really all about? Now, they're certainly right to say that Jesus embodied radical forgiveness, compassion, and love. I mean, the Bible says that in him the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed through Jesus dying on the cross for us. So absolutely, yes. Uh, The Bible also says that through him we have forgiveness of sins. Absolutely. Jesus is the most compassionate person who has ever lived. So all of this is true. What I'd like to explore is, is there more to the story? Is there more that might be missing from the story? And how important is that other side of it, if so? I'd, I'd like to say, I'd like to argue with you today that the other side of the story is of monumental importance. It's just as important, in fact, because Jesus wasn't crucified because he loved the poor and the marginalized. He wasn't crucified because he had compassion. He was crucified because he claimed to have authority and sovereignty to the point where he claimed to have the same authority and sovereignty as God, right? And so this response to Jesus we see is, is either attraction or aversion all throughout the New Testament. And for all of chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel that we've been looking at for the past several weeks and we will wrap up today, Jesus has been giving this sermon to his disciples about how people will respond to them just like they responded to him with this attraction or this aversion. And Jesus has been equipping them to go out in his authority to begin to share the gospel both in word and in deed. And because they are representing him and because they will be doing and saying the same things that Jesus said and did, people will either be attracted or averted. And the same is true for us. As we go out, as we represent Jesus, people will either be attracted to him in us or averted from him in us. And so in these final words of Jesus' instructions, he doesn't just give them these warnings and and preparations. He does, but he also gives them good news because he knows they're going to need it. And the good news is whatever the cost, whatever aversions people might uh, have against them or against Jesus in them, the compensation will be worth it. So we're going to look at this in these two parts. The cost and the compensation will begin in verse 34. The cost. Here's what he said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, if you're anything like me, as I'm reading that, you're going, what? Hold on. 
How is Jesus saying this? I thought that he was the Prince of Peace, right? I thought that through him, as, as, as he was, uh, angels were celebrating his birth, they're like, peace on earth, right? Uh, we even sang earlier on in our service, Jesus, be our peace, be our peace. How can he say that he is, he is not come to bring peace, but a sword? Well, To begin with, we have to understand that Jesus is not saying that division is his goal. That's not what he's working toward. It kind of sounds like it because he says, I've come to do this. That's not his goal, though. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Jesus does not say division is his goal. He says unity is his goal. Over and over again, we're told that. But what we see here is that people are naturally divided from one another on the basis of Jesus, on the basis of him. And and to better understand why this division naturally occurs, we need to know that here Jesus is pointing back to the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 7, he says something almost exactly the same. So Jesus is almost echoing the prophet where he said, for the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are men of his own house. Almost exact same words here. And Micah was predicting that divisions always occur when people reject God's salvation. This is just what naturally happens. There's an inevitable separation between those who believe and those who don't. And the sad truth is that the greater the proximity of those relationships, the greater the hostility of those relationships. Even in Jesus' own family, his siblings didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. They opposed him before that, if you can believe that. So he says, son is going to rise against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are just examples it's, not, it's meant to just show the, the, the broadness of these divisions. And in each one of these relationships, what I want you to notice is that it's the unbeliever who's initiating the hostility against the believing family member and not the other way around. It's important to see it that way. I know some of you guys have experienced this. Now, when we experience this sort of division with our relationships, what we have to do is we have to be careful to allow God to search our own hearts, to search our own actions. As I've said before, we don't want to be jerks for Jesus. Can I get an amen again? Right? And so if people are going to be hostile against us, we want it to be Jesus who they're hostile to, not hostile toward our our pride and our self-righteousness, because Jesus is hostile toward our pride and self-righteousness. We want to be hostile toward our pride and self-righteousness. But once we have evaluated our hearts and our actions, and we're able to, if there's anything to repent of, we're able to, to get that cleared up, and we're able to be changed, then we can actually take these really intense and heavy words from Jesus as an encouragement, believe it or not. And here's why. If this weren't the way that things were supposed to be, if they they weren't the way that things were supposed to go, it would actually be discouraging to hear that all these relationships are going to be divided. Who wants to lose these relationships? 
But because Jesus promises that this will happen, we can actually take hostility from those who we love as a sign that we're doing something right. You get that? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean you're not grieved by the loss of those relationships. I mean, it hurts when you're rejected, even if it's on account of Jesus. But it also really hurts when someone rejects Jesus, someone who we love, who we want to share him with, to share the life that we found in him. We want to share uh, the, the eternal life with them and, and him. And so if that's you, if you're feeling discouraged today, I want you to take these words from Jesus as an encouragement. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop loving that person. Don't stop praying for that person. Don't stop seeking to talk to that person about Jesus. Jesus said that it would go this way, and so you can have confidence that in the end, it will be worth it. And at the same time, we're looking at the cost. And so don't give up Jesus for their sake. He said this in verse 37. He said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I would, I would argue that this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the New Testament. I've seen people take this to all sorts of distorted places, which we'll talk about here in a second, but I want to clear up what it might look like for someone to love family or love friend or love anyone more than Jesus, okay? So let's look at this for a minute. I'm going to give you four different ways that I, I've seen this go in people's lives. First one is someone gives you an ultimatum and you take it seen this happen. So someone says something to the effect of, you can't be a Christian and be in this family. You ever known anyone who's this happened to? This obviously happens a lot more in, say, Muslim countries or countries that are generally much more hostile to Christianity than America is, but it still happens. You can't be a Christian and be in this family. And if you take that ultimatum, if you, if you choose, well, then I guess I can't be a Christian, well, you're obviously loving your family more than Jesus. The second one, I'd say this one is much more common in our culture. You may have even fallen prey to it at some point or other, and that is a qualified ultimatum. So it's a little bit like the first, but it's a little more nuanced. So something to the effect of, you can be a Christian and still be in this family, but you can't talk about Jesus. Anyone ever seen this one or experienced this one? I was actually just talking to someone last week, uh, a guy who became a Christian much later in life. His whole family is atheist. His dad is an extremely hostile and antagonistic atheist. And when he became a Christian, he had to strike this deal with his family members. You can't talk about Jesus with us. Over time, I think he began to feel convicted, like, this is who I am. I I love Jesus. He's at the center of my life. Everything that I do is, is formed around who he is and my identity in him. I'm being dishonest, for one. I'm not being truthful with them if I'm keeping Jesus out of these conversations. But more than that, I'm, I'm denying Jesus by not bringing him up. And so he started talking about Jesus again, and he, it was met with hostility. His family 
has forced him out. He's, he's estranged from his father. It's a very sad situation. And so it's easy to, to see that temptation of like, well, I guess it's a, a compromise. Like, I want to be a part of this family. They're saying I can be here as a Christian, but I just need to not talk about Jesus. Well, I guess I'd rather have Jesus and them. And it feels like a compromise, but Jesus is saying, no, no, you're loving family more than me. Another example, I gave you guys an example of this a couple weeks ago with an old friend of mine, and I would say this is another common one in Seattle especially, and that is, it's a passive-aggressive ultimatum, so to speak. It's a, it's a passive-aggressive treatment. So uh, may, maybe it's better to think of this in terms of friendships instead of family. Something to the effect of, we would never say that you can't be a Christian and be our friend, because then we would feel like we were bigoted or something. But in reality, we will ghost you if we find out that you're a Christian. Anybody experienced this before? I, I gave you guys a story about that a couple weeks ago where my friend did that to me. And the question is, what do you do after that? After you've been rejected by your friend group or your, your individual friend, what happens when you meet new friends? Do you kind of try and keep Jesus under wraps? Do you try and keep quiet about that? You don't want to experience that again. And so I think that there's this temptation to love friendships more than Jesus after you've experienced something like that and keep uh, the, the fact that you're a Christian quiet in those future relationships. So the fourth one, the last one that I'll give you, is missionary dating. Missionary dating. We could, we could replace Jesus' words here in that slide with whoever loves boyfriend or girlfriend more than me is not worthy of me. Um, and, and here's the common thinking, okay? Here's the common thinking. It's already hard enough to find someone uh, who I want to date or marry, and now I'm narrowing the list down to people who are only Christians? This is... This is too hard. This is impossible. In fact, in, in Seattle, it probably does feel impossible. And friends who are with us who are single, I know it's hard. I know I've walked with single people for years through the pain and the hardship and the loneliness and just the desire. I want to I wanna be married. What am I going to do? And so I want to say, I, I'm sorry. And I want to pull aside for a second and just address the single people in the room. Because uh, we don't get an opportunity to say this very often, but I want you to know, single folks, that you are not junior varsity Christians. Can I get an amen, church? You are not junior varsity Christians. Uh, marriage, while it is a wonderful gift from God, it doesn't mean that you've kind of graduated from singleness and now all of a sudden you experience the fullness of life as a Christian. <laughs> amen? Uh, it's just reality, right? And, and more than that, Jesus was single. Paul was single. Many heroes of the faith were single. And so being single does not mean that you are missing out on life. It doesn't mean that you are a lesser than Christian. So I want you to hear that today. And now I want to come back to the missionary dating thing. What's the problem with missionary dating. It's compromising your devotion 
to Jesus. That's what the problem is with it. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I actually look at it here in my my Bible. Uh, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He goes on to say, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? He says that being united to a believer is it's partnering with darkness. That's what Paul is saying. And willfully disobeying this command is loving a person more than Jesus. Very heavy. It's compromising Jesus being the Lord of your life for this temporary solution, this temporary relief to your loneliness. And so these are some examples that I've given you. Ultimatum, qualified ultimatum, passive-aggressive, missionary dating. Examples of ways that you might be pressed between loving people or loving Jesus. But before we move on from this passage, what what I want to say is that most relationships, most situations don't actually create a dichotomy between these two things. In fact, in most cases, loving others is an expression of loving Jesus. And and the reason why I'm pointing that out is because I think that a lot of people can take this to the extreme. I, I have a friend whose sister a few years ago, actually left her family. She has several kids, I think three kids and and her husband. She left them. She moved out of the house. She hasn't divorced her husband yet. She moved out of the house so that she could uh, go, as she says, and go follow Jesus. But her whole family's Christian, right? She's removed herself from this situation as an expression of what she thinks this verse is about. She's trying to... She's trying to devote herself to Jesus, and yet she's actually not fulfilling the commands of Scripture. And we can do this in all kinds of much more subtle ways than that. Like, I have to keep Jesus at number one, and then if I'm married, then it's my wife or my husband. If I have kids, then it's my kids, or maybe it's my friendships if I'm single. But this is a false dichotomy, because we're, we're whole people. And sadly, sometimes the clergy are the worst offenders at this because we can say, I'm working for God. I can be a workaholic. I can be gone more than I should. I can neglect my family, neglect my ministry to my family, and just call my vocational ministry the real one. Right? You, you see this in all kinds of relationships in much more subtle ways like, sorry, honey, I can't help get the kids to bed anymore because I'm spending time with the Lord. This is, my, this is my Jesus time. That's really convenient that you chose uh, 7 p.m. as your Jesus time. Um, and what I want you to hear is that loving your wife if you're married or loving your husband if you're married, it, it's, a, it's an expression of loving Jesus. If you have kids, it's an expression of loving Jesus to love them. If you have friends or other family, it's it's an extension, expression of your love for Jesus. But what Jesus is trying to correct is when our devotion to them exceeds or compromises, probably a better word, 
our devotion to him. And now he's going to raise the stakes even more. We've been talking about the cost. We're going to get to the compensation. And this verse, these two verses here are 38 and 39 are sort of at the center of all of that, where Jesus is going to show us both the cost and the compensation, and we'll then follow it up with the compensation. So verse 38 and 39 And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the most frequently quoted uh, saying of Jesus in the New Testament. So if you don't understand this, you cannot understand what it means to follow him. And he's telling us here what it means to to follow him, to be worthy of him is the term that he uses. Or in other words, to be deserving of him, to, to qualify someone for acceptance into his kingdom. It's someone who has made an exchange. That's what Jesus is saying. It's someone who has made an exchange. And there are two kinds of exchanges that people make. One exchange is the way of the world. And the other exchange is the way of the upside-down kingdom. And that's what Jesus is contrasting here. The way of the world exchanges the eternal for the temporal. Did you catch that? He said, whoever finds his life, that's temporally, will lose it eternally. The way of the upside-down kingdom is the opposite. right? It's it's upside-down from the way of the world. Jesus says, whoever loses his life, that's temporally, will, for my sake, will find it that's eternally. And so the cost of losing our lives for his sake, he says, is taking up our cross. It's following in the footsteps of our Savior. It's being willing to sacrifice anything that goes against his will for the sake of surrendering to him as our Lord, as our King, as our Savior. And so whatever the cost, Jesus is telling us, the compensation is well worth it. You get that? The compensation of eternal life, it far outweighs the loss of family, the loss of friends, the loss of of boyfriends, of girlfriends, of, of anyone who we might love in this life. The compensation of eternal life far outweighs it. The compensation of eternal life outweighs whatever it might cost us in this life. And now Jesus is going to stress that compensation in these last few verses even more. And and if you've been with us these last few weeks, we've been hearing so much about the cost. We've been hearing so much about suffering for Jesus. It's been kind of heavy. And you might be feeling like, you know, you're standing in the pouring rain and the darkness of winter and you're just freezing. And now all of a sudden, the clouds are about to part. The sun is about to come out and shine on your face. This is what allows us to endure the great cost of following Jesus. It's this compensation. He talks about it some more in these last verses of chapter 10, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, 
And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, these little ones are Jesus' disciples, it's, it's the marginalized, it's the, 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 the underbelly of, of society, the people who, are, who have lower social status because they follow Jesus, even gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Okay, so Jesus is talking about some things that are kind of strange to us, a little foreign to us here, and, and we need to unpack them a little bit. And you know what's really great, what's fortunate, is that each one of these things begins with an R. So it helps pastors to build sermons because we can use alliteration. Uh, receiving, righteousness, and rewards. These three things are a bit perplexing to us, so I want to unpack each one of them. First, receiving. What does Jesus mean by receive? In this case, he's talking about his disciples being received into someone's house. Remember, they're going on this regional missions trip, right? And they're going to go out and they're, they're, they're going to either face aversion or, or acceptance, right, or traction. And in this case, Jesus is talking about People showing hospitality to his messengers, but he's also talking about hospitality being shown to their message. And when they are received, it's as though Jesus is the one being received. And the same is true for us. As we go out, as we share the love and the message of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, we are received by someone And it's as though that person is receiving Jesus himself. Jesus talks about this multiple times in Scripture. And likewise, when we receive someone in the name of Jesus, it's as though we are receiving Jesus himself. I'll give you a couple of examples later on in in Matthew's Gospel. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. Jesus does not mean himself. He means someone else who was received in his name. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And he closes that part with saying, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Think about that for a minute. Some of you have the spiritual gift of hospitality. And what I don't mean is is entertaining. Entertaining is great, but Christian hospitality is a little bit different from that. It's, it's welcoming people with the love of Jesus. And if that's you, I want to just praise God for you. <laughs> you guys who have the gift of hospitality, just wonderful. I, I feel like I'm always lacking in that gift. I want to be growing in that gift. And so if you're like me and you're like, oh, I don't have that spiritual gift, well, good news is you still have the Holy Spirit. You know, you can still press into some of those areas where you're either weak or you're uncomfortable. Press into those areas where you, you might otherwise not receive people in his name and by the power of the Spirit, step into Christian hospitality. So that's receiving. The second one that I said you might remember is righteousness. What is the deal with righteousness? Can we just figure this thing out? It's, it, it feels kind of complicated because the Bible talks about it, especially the New Testament, in different ways. There are two types of righteousness spoken of in the New Testament. There's righteous standing and there's righteous living. 
Okay, so I want to break those down for you. Righteous standing is something that God grants to us. And in fact, this idea of righteous standing, it doesn't just appear in the New Testament. It actually began in the Old Testament. And that's where they're, they're pointing back to when they talk about it in the New Testament. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Genesis 15, 6. It says, He, that's Abraham, believed the Lord. He had faith. And he, that's God, counted it to him, that's Abraham, his righteousness. So Abraham believed in God, he had faith in God, and God declared him righteous. And in his grace, God gives us this gift of faith. And when we believe in him, God makes this declaration. He says, you are righteous. You are righteous. And your faith in God in that moment, that moment of faith, it's put you in the right. And so now you have righteous standing before God. But the second type of righteousness that the New Testament authors talk about is righteous living. And it's probably a bit more obvious than righteous standing. It's literally just living righteously. It's living Rightly, it's doing what is right. It's, it's living as God has designed, as God has commanded. And so as Christians, we now have to do the hard work of synthesizing all this, right? How do we take righteous standing and synthesize it with righteous living? Well, we say you are righteous, so be righteous. You have righteous standing, so live righteously, now, which one of these two, the standing or the living, is emphasized by Matthew's gospel? Righteous living, not righteous standing. In fact, Matthew only ever talks about it in terms of righteous living. And it should also be obvious then that, that this is the sort of righteousness that Jesus has in mind here. He makes himself clear by including this righteous Deed. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, one of these lesser than people in society, these Christians, these disciples whom he has sent. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about righteous living. And all of this, the reception, the, the, the living righteously, all of this leads to rewards. And man, do people get a little uncomfortable when we start talking about rewards. Start feeling like Martin Luther or something. You're like, I don't think I can handle rewards. That doesn't seem right to me. We'll talk about that. What are rewards? What are rewards? Rewards are not like what we might get from a business, right? I mean, I'm telling you, I swear I get an email or a text message from Chipotle or Pagliacci like every single day asking me to take advantage of my rewards, right? That's not what we're talking about. Uh, rewards from God, they're not perks. You know, they're not airline miles, right? So what are rewards? Well, coming back to what we're talking about here, compensation. Compensation, or even better than that word, would be the word recompense. Now, we kind of like, what the heck are we talking about when we talk about recompense? Recompense is actually the word that Jesus uses it's what he says he will bring with him upon his return when he comes to judge the living and the dead. He says, I will repay everyone according to their deeds. And so 
just quickly, the, the recompense right here, definition, like how I have the d- dictionary thing where you can pronounce it and all that. You like that? Here's what it says. Recompense is compensation given for loss, which is what we've been talking about this whole time, or harm suffered, what we've been talking about this whole time, or effort made. Hmm. Okay. So why does God give us rewards? And the answer is because he is just. It's not because he's indebted to us. It's not because he owes us anything, but it's because he is gracious to us. In fact, earlier in uh, 2 Corinthians, we were looking at chapter 6 earlier, now we're in 5, Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, here's the thing. In his grace, God promises to freely give us eternal recompense for the temporal expense of following him. God will repay us. You see, we don't earn rewards from God. He's the one who gives us the grace to have faith in him to begin with. He's the one who gives us the grace to have righteous living. And then he is so gracious that he rewards us for it. Just think about that. And we might say, okay, what are, are there varying degrees of rewards? I mean, Jesus talks about mansions and stuff, right? What's the deal with that? <laughs> well, it does seem like there are varying degrees of rewards. Paul said just a minute ago that so that each one may receive what is due for what they have done in their body. And one sign that uh, in Jesus' instructions here that there are varying degrees of rewards is that he says that there's different rewards for prophets than there are for righteous persons. And we know that prophets tend to pay a higher cost than everyone else. Prophets tend to get killed, right? Like uh, John the Baptist, for example, or Jesus, for example, or many of the Old Testament prophets, But living righteously is also very costly. And so doing what is right may be very expensive. But Jesus is saying, whatever we are given in the end, for whatever we have done in the present, it will all be worth it. So you might still be unconvinced. You're like, just feels dirty. I don't get this whole rewards thing. I mean, it feels like a conflict of interest, like... Should I want these mansions and these crowns with all these jewels in them and everything? And there, and there is something honorable about that attitude, not wanting to just like do the right things for the wrong reasons. That's good. A soldier's primary motivation should be to serve his country, not earn medals, right? We shouldn't live righteously so we can kind of save up all those goodies in eternity. Uh, that's actually a pagan way of thinking about the next life. But we need to remember, friends, that God is the one giving here. God is the one giving. And we aren't going to simply be given gifts in eternity with him. All of the gifts that we are given, all of these rewards are all signs of what he has done for us. 
Every reward we receive is an emblem of his grace, of his glory. In that song, Jesus paid it all. It says, when before the throne I stand in him complete, I will lay my trophies down, lay them down at Jesus' feet. Our rewards are a means of celebrating God's glory, which we will get to do for all of eternity. And so whatever the cost that we may face today, the compensation is absolutely worth it. Our community group instructions for this week, what has following Jesus cost you is a question to kind of spark some conversation. And then we're going to do this March discipline of sharing your faith. I'll send out the instructions for that to everyone who's in a group. I'll share that out tomorrow. Let's pray as we get ready to respond to God together. God, we thank you that all we have to give up is this temporal life, our own will in this life. And you are so gracious that you you repay us with eternity with you. If we can only picture this, God, we pray that you would help us to picture this. We pray that as we face the cost of following you, which is getting more and more expensive, we pray that, God, you would give us courage and confidence that it will all be worth it in the end. Pray this so that you can get a lot of glory through what we do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.